Hi, my name's Stephen Crafty and I'm presenting Talking Design and I'm very excited to welcome my next guest onto the program, interior designer extraordinaire Sue Carr. Welcome to the program, Sue. Oh, thank you, Stephen. It's a pleasure to be with you. Um, now, Sue, most people know Sue in Australia, probably overseas as well. Sue is um, director of CAR, CAR Design, uh, a very large interior design practice. And before we even begin this um, interview, Sue, I have to congratulate you for your Order of Australia, which is... Well, it is extraordinary, but it's well-deserved. So congratulations. It's an achievement that you must be just over the moon about. Uh, I think it, it's, a, it's a, a great surprise to, to receive, um, but I think it's um, testimony to the people that I've worked with over the last five decades, um, a wonderful group of um, team members. So it's quite unusual for a practice an architectural practice, design practice, to get an Order of Australia from I never see it in the list. So that's pretty unique. The other thing is it's, your practice is coming up to 50 years, which is quite extraordinary. And, and that is a milestone in itself. Yes, it's coincided very well. We started business in May um, 1971, so this is our, our fifth decade. Amazing. So, Sue, tell me your background. You actually, we have a lovely connection with you and RMIT University um, uh, where you actually, you didn't start with interior design, you started with science. Yes, applied science. What an unusual start. Why science? Uh, my family were divided um, in science and arts. My mother um, was a milliner and my father uh, was a scientist. He was also a pharmacist. Um, and I guess he encouraged me um, to pursue science. Um, always on my birthdays, I would get, um, uh, you know, a chemistry set instead <laughs> of dolls. Um, and we would always um, enjoy concocting very unusual experiments together but at school um, I actually loved art and in my final years I had to drop it for maths and and science and um, but in the long run I think it's been beneficial for my career to have that background when and I finally landed at RMIT um, in applied chemistry um, I realized in about three months that this wasn't what I wanted to do um, forever and so I decided to look at architecture um, which just happened to be close by. I, I, I didn't put too much thought into it. I just thought I need to change what I'm doing. And um, I walked past the uh, architectural faculty to a small um, temporary classroom on the roof of the architecture school that was called Interior Design. And the um, head of design there welcomed me, wondered what I was doing, and I said, well, I'm not very happy across the road. I'm wondering if I could come and join you. And he said, well, do you want to know what it's about? And I said, that would be good. Anyway, I, I joined interior design mid-year um, at, that, at that time and was lucky to um, get through my first year and, and I really just loved every, every minute of it. So were you one of the first intake for interior design? Because I would have thought that's quite new at that stage. Um, I think there'd been an, a few years before me and I know that... Uh, Mary Featherston, uh, trained as an interior designer quite a few years prior to me. 
um, but it was relatively new, uh, fledgling course, yes. Uh, you must have started the practice fairly soon after graduating. I, I did. Um, <clears throat> I was fortunate um, to do well in um, building construction, probably because of my scientific background, and I was invited to join a small architectural practice in, in Carlton behind the university as an undergrad, and then when I graduated, he offered me a full-time job. Um, and it was a wonderful experience to work with an architect. Um, they didn't have any work for an interior designer. I don't, I don't think they really knew what an interior designer was. Um, who, who was the practice, Sue? It was called Ronald Lee and Associates in Cardigan Street. Yeah. Um, I then went to Meldrum and Partners in, in Collins Street, Street and uh, that exposed me to much larger projects and I started work as an interior designer. But I soon um, really wanted to do my own thing. Um, it frustrated me that, um, that I wasn't able to uh, present to my own clients at that point in my life. Um, I couldn't explain the idea behind the project and quite often I would get numerous changes because people really didn't understand the idea and so I decided to start, decided to start my own practice Was, um, in 1971. Um, so at that time, you know, look, it's still not very clear in people's minds now. There's this huge confusion, um, not in your circle, but you know, in Australian circles where, you know, interior design and interior decoration are very different things. And I'm, I would have thought, Sue, in 1971, even just explaining what you did would have been a bit of a challenge. Um, it was difficult. Um, and later on, we tried very hard to change the name of interior design to interior architecture um, because that did explain very much uh, what we were setting out to do, um, it, you know, to me it was a science as as much as an art, as much as as architecture is, and um, and we were confused by many as as being decorators, as you rightly say. But it didn't take long for us to um, display um, what we do, and once we were able to deliver some projects, um, the, the, the business grew quite quickly. So um, what was probably a breakthrough project for you in the beginning? Something that really you just felt, wow, this is conf your confidence, you know, your confidence there and the work. What was a, a, a milestone project that you really recall in the early days that made an well, idea into a very big idea? I think um, if I look back um, probably 20, 30 years, um, I think the major brief I had from the chairman of the stock exchange um, was to move them from uh, 351 Collins to a, a new purpose-built building um, at the, um, oh, where am I? At the other end of Collins Street um, to, towards the west. I can't think of the numbers. I'm yeah. sorry. No, that's okay. Um, and it was already on the ground floor set up for a traditional stock exchange. Um, but it seemed to me with the world of um, um, digital thinking 
um, already out there. I wondered why we were using um, chalkies running along a, um, you know, a very narrow band and, and putting up um, the figures relating to stocks with chalk. Um, and I was then fortunate to be invited amongst some very eminent um, architectural practices in Melbourne to build the new exchange. So I got in a plane, on a plane and I flew um, to America to try and learn more about how Las Vegas worked um, because here there were, were, it was a digital operation and we didn't have anything like that in Australia. And I then bid for the work on the basis of a digital um, place for people to go. In other words, what was taking place of the old trading floor. Um, we've, so we rewrote the brief and won the job based on our early thoughts about creating a place that was digitally operated um, that showed the movement in the world um, with a, a large barcode screen and some very clunky, if you look back on it now, um, personal um, computers that allowed people to people that came into the area to actually um, use these computers to look at stocks and shares and prices and whatever. I think that was a really significant project that demonstrated that interior designers weren't interior decorators. They were deep thinkers um, about how people operate, about how people work. Um, and, and so it was, it was incredibly successful and it was the first digital um, trading floor, if you like, um, in the world. Yeah, look, you, you do take these things for granted, but when you look back, you know, 10, 20, 30 years and you see the changes, you know, incrementally they mightn't seem that radical, but when you start talking about chalk on walls, that is quite historical almost. You know, mm. people wouldn't even go there now. I mean, that's obviously something of the past. Um, but, you know, I think the other thing, so you've kind of created a very strong niche um, in the residential market. I mean, you do a lot of apartment buildings now. Yes. I was one of the few interior designers that was happy to still do residential work. I think most um, interior designers and particularly architects with the interior design um, groups within their businesses um, really found residential detached housing um, a very demanding. Well, it is demanding. And, and also um, not always very profitable because of the amount of work that had to be done to deliver the outcome for a family. I just yeah. love, I love this work. I, I just loved it. And to this day, we still do three or four detached houses a year, even with the large business, because I think it's a wonderful, a wonderful thing to do. And it's also a testing ground. So you can really explore ideas on a smaller scale and then perhaps take them to a larger project. I mean, I think you are aware of one of them um, in Meruwe Crescent. Yes. Um, and that was completed in 1991. Um, we started work on it probably 1988. Um, and this was a, a, a probably the first really substantial home. Um, and it was combining two 
um, land sites um, and demolishing two houses and, and building um, um, a, a new residence for this you know, wonderful couple. Um, and, and it's still there today. And it's still there today. And as you probably know, nothing has changed. It's still exactly the way I left it um, all those years ago. And, and this was a, a very large architectural practice as well. Uh, I'm sorry, a large architectural project, um, yes. which really, um, I think, uh, allowed me to explore um, architectural form. We had architects working for us, obviously, and that was probably the, the precursor to us becoming an architectural practice formally. Um, so what's interesting about that house, and I know it well because I actually I did a, ran an architecture tour through it, mm. um, but it still resonates with me. It was 1991, so it's kind of really kind of the we're in a recession recession we had to have it's it's a beautiful home but what i uh i still think about is that it's very classic it's very timeless and unlike a lot of uh designers um who kind of change with each decade and you kind of get a different look so you know the 80s you go into memphis the 90s you might go into beige or very you seem to have a very um clear direction and, and I think this house really epitomises your practice, that um, there's a sense of appropriateness and you don't waver. So you don't, you know, there's no little Memphis additions or little um, flotations with decorative styles that come in and out each, each few years. I think that's what gives it the strength. And um, look, I really have to admire you, Sue, for for your determination because, you know, the the market's very fickle and it's a bit like in fashion, you know, you can have people who, who love very, you know, the highly decorative and then the next year's very pared back. Is it now, is it something you just feel comfortable with that you get, you know, you find people get confused when they put too much into a house or a project and they actually lose really what the key idea is? Yes, they lose sight of what we started with. Yes, that's right. And I think that's an inability um, to develop what we call the big idea and stick with it from end to end. Um, and but that's also, hard to do. It is I mean, hard to do. Um, but I think the outcome um, is very, very definitely um, a property that doesn't date. It is absolutely um, contemporary in its sorts. So it's not like we're recreating the past. It's always contemporary. We're not interested in fads or fashion because in themselves well, they, come they, they come and go. Um, and it's also about the placement of, of the work on the land the, and the amenity that that provides. And in the case of um, Merriwee Crescent, we had a beautiful established garden with major trees. And it so was so much the idea behind it was to actually settle the house amongst the trees. And, of course, there's the watercourse going through the middle of the property from memory. And there was, indeed. There was um, an easement that passed on the diagonal from south to north through the property, <clears throat> which inspired us um, to create a bridge from the main house to the pool pavilion, part of the brief 
from the client was to have an indoor and an outdoor pool so they could swim uh, 12 months of the year in Melbourne. Um, so that meant that we needed to be able to enclose a structure, but we also needed to open a structure. And part of that was using the system that now exists at Rod Laver Arena, which was um, part of the technology of an opening and closing roof. But anyway, back to the easement, um, we needed to have a bridge across the easement um, quite high above the land uh, so that the access um, could be achieved without having to deconstruct part of the house. So there were some lovely moments where you were constrained, but in many ways it's the con this constraint that actually creates the magic. Creates the work, exactly. And, I mean, if someone came to me and said, choose whatever site you wanted anywhere in the world and you can do whatever you like, I don't think we, could, we would know where to start. So it's actually starting from the premise of having a series of constraints mm -hmm. and then building on that. Yes. Um, so if we, if we look at the, the, your, um, you know, apartments have been in probably in, in Melbourne anyway, in Sydney, probably from about the mid-90s, people were exploring apartment living. And I think people s soon realised there's so many small apartments around. But I would say, you know, a number of years ago, you introduced the Sky House to to Australians saying, look, there are other options. How did that come about? Was it was there a developer who who really had the idea, or did you suggest it? You know, was it kind of something you thought you'd just try and see how it how it worked? Um, yes, I mean, houses in the sky was very much the brief, um, and we were fortunate to be working in a, um, a potential tower in Brisbane. And it gave us the opportunity to, to um, define different spaces because we um, provided one or two bed lofts, which was quite new to the apartment market. So there was a lovely verticality and atrium um, um, design in some of the apartments. And that was really the first experiment, I'm sure. What year was that, Sue? Uh, I think it probably would have been mid-90s. Oh, that's a long time ago. No, wait a minute. 2000, um, early 2000s. Early 2000, yes, you probably, that's right. Yes, it would have been early 2000. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, maybe 2003 or four. Yeah. Um, anyway, um, we, um, we developed this and, and sadly the, the building didn't go ahead because of recession, um, but it was a very, very different offering I think that the current work we're doing, I'm not talking about the 100-storey buildings, but the ones that we are currently designing as architects and also as interior designers, is giving us a lovely opportunity not only to deliver uh, apartments uh, and buildings that sit beautifully in streetscape, and I think this is a big challenge um, when you find a developer that agrees with you on that matter and we're not always... Um, building uh, boxes that maximise height and are really quite wrong for where they are. Um, so there's a nice opportunity to deliver a, a streetscape that where the apartments sit, and I think that's the first thing we need to think about. And then to look at where we can have the opportunity on the smaller ones, say 12 apartments, where we can get cross breezes, fresh air, large terraces, integration of landscape 
um, I mean, they are really um, detached houses that are elevated without the need for the owner to um, care for it because there are body corporates and people that look after it. I think the larger apartment um, uh, sites that we have are always doing that. We're, we're um, constantly looking for outdoor amenity, um, indoor-outdoor connection, Introducing landscape has been something we have been doing um, for years and years, um, no matter how small um, the balcony is, but giving an opportunity for landscape. The other thing is, um, even on some of the smaller stocks, Stephen, it's, it, it follows that our designs are simple um, in their thinking. Um, it's choosing simplicity over complexity. Um, it's it's using the interplay of shadow and, and light on a wall rather than hanging something on the wall. Because uh, getting to that point, so, you know, people think minimalism is actually quite, and I wouldn't call you a minimalist. I'd just say, no, we're not. You're no, not we're a not minimalist. minimalist. No. Um, but I'd call yourself, you know, you're very pared back and considered. But um, I'd have to say, so there's more it's more challenging to to be a, a reductionist than just throw things at things. And uh, look, I think um, people don't realise that every line has to be perfect, really. Every every detail, every angle, you can't uh, cover up. It's Everything's basically on show. It is, and it's harder to build. It's harder to be perfect. Um, because, as you say, um, everything is on show. But what that does allow, especially in the smaller stock, is a calmness, uh, a space for everything. We still consider um, what people need to function, but we're pairing it back to allow um, the space to speak for itself. Um, so rather than adding to it, we're, we're removing. And I think that's... Um, is, is part of the key behind successful apartment design. And as I say, using um, shadow and light rather than hanging things on a wall uh, is all part of uh, appreciating the, the day, the time of the day. Um, and, and equally, artificial light is an important part of, of the um, home-like feeling too. I mean, we put a lot of work into... Um, lighting these apartments beautifully at night so that there's um, a wonderful sense of, of being in a home rather than in a, a very tight box. So the smaller apartments are also something we love doing and, and, and creating a successful outcome. So the other area that you've, you've kind of, you're starting to own, you know, the space of it is, um, uh, and I don't really like the word boutique, but more bespoke, uh, hotels and that's something that's really been missing for a number of years uh, you know when people came to Melbourne or Sydney there's not really a, a huge choice of where to stay you won a number of awards for your domain um, hotel mm -hmm. and you've just finished a new one in Turak Road what do you think was missing in hotel accommodation previously well, people um, go to a hotel for two reasons, either for leisure or business, um, really. And 
I think there's always needs to be a sense, a point of difference from what their homes might be. It's it's an escape. It's a um, and even a business traveller still needs in their their guest room everything that facilitates them to be able to work or or meet. But the ground floor, the ground plane, or the entertainment areas are an important part as well. And so I think when you look at the um, hotels around the world um, and certainly the trains, um, they were of a generic model. I mean, you could be anywhere in the world, but you stay at the same place. You wouldn't know where you are. You wouldn't know where you were. Um, And so to me, um, it was all about um, looking at the location. We come back to location again uh, and building um, something that, that actually... Um, not only services the, uh, the that the people in that area, but invites for food and beverage, for example. So we always need to provide um, um, food and beverage opportunities for the local people, but and the people that come in from other parts of Australia and overseas. It's an experience. And if it's the one in Domain Road, it's opposite the Botanical Gardens. So we have a view to the Botanical Gardens, which is one um, style of room. And we have a view to the red rooftops of, you know, old South Yarra on the south side. So there was a lovely opportunity to create quite a different experience. And the other one in Mornington Peninsula, which was won a lot of awards, global awards, um, was just the most Did challenging brief we've ever had. This but is Jackalope. That was Jackalope. A wonderful narrative was formed before we even started about what we were to deliver. The architectural form is simple. We just borrowed from the existing sheds of the uh, vineyard. So it was a bit more than a shed, yeah. but it was in form. It sat on the land um, beautifully with the vineyard that surrounded it. So it, so, so it always comes back to context in the end and really the way you respond to that, wherever you are, here or overseas, it's not just, you know, working in a vacuum. Yes, exactly right, exactly right. And always seeking new ideas. So it seems funny when I say that when I'm not interested in fashion, but they're two completely different things. Staying abreast of technology is very, very uh, important part of our work, um, using technology to deliver um, different experiences, both uh, functional and and um, from, from leisure point of view, um, keeping abreast of um, new uh, furniture styles, materials, finishes, lighting, what um, everything you- to do with the interior. What do you enjoy most about work now? I mean, it's a very different practice from when you started in 71 Mm. to now in 2021. It's much larger. Do you find it's just difficult getting through the day or is it just you have to be much more efficient with your time or you just think, oh, God, what have I done? You know, I mean, it's it's a huge practice now. Um. I'm, I'm very proud to be part of the practice, Stephen. Um, we've handed the baton um, to Chris McHugh, who's managing director, and he's an architect and, and a very um, competent interior designer. Um, and we've handed the position of CEO to my son, Nick Carr, 
Um, so I've started um, not stepping back but changing what I do. And so my role um, is very much a mentoring role with our young designers but still incredibly involved in my own projects um, where I steer the um, big idea to start with and, and get deeply involved in the details. So I'm very fortunate. I'm, I, what I love most is my role as a designer. But over the years, to create a business, um, often I wondered, <laughs> you know, how much time I had to be a designer because there were so many other facets of the business that needed attention. Well, look, Sue, thank you so much for your time today. I know you're um, you're still very, very, very busy. And look, well done on the Order of Australia and 50 years in business because for an interior or design, it's not in interior, it's architecture and interior design practice to be thriving after 50 years is an extraordinary achievement. So well done, Sue. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Stephen Crafty. Talking Design is produced by RMIT University and brought to you in partnership with Melbourne City Council. If you'd like to stay up to date with all things Talking Design, be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at talkingdesign underscore.